Malachi chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 16 and read through the end of chapter 4. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and evildoers will be stubble. The day is coming, the day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The word of the Lord. All right, we have made it to the final week and the final message of our year-long study of the Old Testament minor prophets. Um, and I was telling uh, Jenna last night at family meal, this has been as much a journey for me as I think it's been for anyone else. These were all books that I had read before. Uh, the only one that I had ever taught before in its entirety was the book of Jonah, and then just maybe bits and pieces from some other things like Hosea and Amos. Um, but I've never taught through all of these in this way, and so it's been really good for me personally, and I hope it's been good for you as well. So today, as we come to the end of Malachi, we're reading not just the, the end of Malachi, but we're, we're literally reading the final words of the Old Testament. Um, following Malachi, there are something like 400 years uh, between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, which is known as the intertestamental period. And what's the first New Testament book to be written? You know, it's, it's maybe not what you would think. It's actually probably one of Paul's epistles, um, quite possibly First Thessalonians. Um, that's a popular one. It's definitely an early letter uh, written probably in the 40s A.D., so something like 10, 12 years after the resurrection of Christ. Um, interestingly, it's still probably another 15 years from there before the first of the gospel accounts are written. So in the 60s A.D., the gospel of Mark probably being the first of the gospel accounts to be written. So you've got a 400-year gap or so between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament. As we've said about Malachi, it's structured around a series of what are called disputations. And in each disputation, if you remember, God makes a claim, the people dispute what God has said, and then God responds to their disputation. Um, and so that's sort of been the structure that we've been working with as we've gone through this. Look with me real quick. This isn't on the screen, but look with me at Malachi 3, just a few verses before what we just read. Malachi 3, verse 13, 
Because we get almost an emotional response from God as a result of all of this disputation. All of this, him saying something and the people trying to refute what he's saying. Verse 13 says, this is God speaking. He says, your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? Again, this is that form. God says, your words have been hard against me. And the people respond and say, what have we said about you, God? And he says, you have said it is vain to serve God meaning it's pointless to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking and mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. God says, it has been hard for me to listen to your disputes against me. And that word hard gets translated differently uh, in different English translations. There's one translation that translates it as the word rude. Your words have been rude to me. Uh, King James says your words have been stout. Uh, the New Revised Standard says your words have been harsh against me. So I think, I think you get the point of what God is saying. It's like when your child screams at you, I hate you. Or you don't really love me. Or like my kids, you're not my real dad. You know, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, sorry. <laughs> It's not just that the words are dishonoring, it's that they hurt, right? They hurt. God's not saying, how dare you speak words of dishonor against me? He's speaking as a father who has poured himself out to his children only to have them claim that he doesn't love them or that his words aren't worth listening to, right? And that, that hurts him, that grieves him. But in all of this, throughout this study, there have always been two groups. I mean, throughout the minor prophets, two groups. There is a majority that dishonors God and disputes his love and does what they want. And then there is a minority who loves the Lord and who fears the Lord. And, and that Hebrew word, yirat, which gets translated fear, most literally means awe, wonder, not necessarily like terror, and, and I think that helps us somewhat here. You have one group, the majority, who lives in a state of selfishness and denying and disputing God's claims, not honoring him as Lord, doing what they want. Then you have a minority who are walking in a state of awe and wonder as it relates to God. When God says, I love you, the minority says, I know, isn't it incredible? Whereas the majority says, no, you don't. And, you know, it's easy to conclude that some people are just naturally, like, predisposed to be trusting of the Lord. That, that, that they just kind of naturally gravitate to being, like, positive people who see God as being the good and faithful father that he is. But, you know, I actually think it's easier to live in the majority than it is to live in the minority. Right? It's easier to become indoctrinated to the prevailing culture that largely questions God or denies God than it is to cultivate a God-fearing life, a life that is lived in a state of awe and wonder as it relates to God. 
And I use cultivate, I use that word intentionally because I think this is something, I think it's something we have to intentionally cultivate. Because in doing this, like we're swimming upstream, like it's hard work, it's not easy. And, and God loves for people to swim upstream, right? God loves for us to push back against the current of this world. And that's what he always wanted for Israel, by the way. He always wanted to be Israel to be a nation that was not like the other nations, to be separate, to be distinct, to be unique, to be a different kind of nation, a nation where the fear of the Lord was central. And as a result, everyone else was blessed by it, right? This nation is different in that they truly love the Lord, and so as a result, they are a blessing, to other nations. That's, that's sort of the root. If you've ever heard somebody say something like, we're blessed to be a blessing, that's where that comes from. This idea that God had poured himself out in grace and mercy to this people so that the blessings that he had given them would benefit the entire world. And they do, by the way, through Christ, who comes out of Israel. But even more than that, or alongside that, God also wanted them to be a physical blessing to other nations. He wanted them to be a nation where people could take refuge and find hope, a nation that would care for other people. But instead, they came into the land of Canaan, and rather than following the Lord, they got swept up in the prevailing Canaanite culture and the prevailing Canaanite religions. So here we are in Malachi, and we find a minority. Look with me at chapter 3, verse 16, the beginning of our text. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, right? So those who fear the Lord, in contrast to everybody else that we've seen up to this point in Malachi, those who dispute against the Lord. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another, and the Lord paid attention and heard them, and a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession, and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. So the message translation says something like this. Those, uh, those who feared the Lord had a meeting, and God called for the minutes to be kept. Like, that's a really interesting way of thinking about this text. These are people who are swimming upstream when everyone else is disputing God's word. This group is gathering to talk about his words. And I hope you really take in this picture because it gives us a glimpse, I think, into the heart of like the, the fatherly heart of God. God is so proud of this group that it's almost like he, he makes like a photo album of these moments where they come together in spite of everything else that's going on in the world, where they come together to honor him by listening to his words and, and discussing his words. He has this book of remembrance written about these people. Same way maybe that you would like keep a baby book, right? And you'd like write down milestones and you'd go back and you'd look at it and it, it would bring you joy. 
But don't miss this. God says in verse 17 and 18 that a day, a day is coming when he will take these people to be his. Those who have cultivated lives in which the fear of the Lord is central, where serving him, not themselves, is central. And he says that on that day, once again, people will be able to see the difference between right and wrong. Verse 18, then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And man, isn't that in contrast to the world we live in today? Because we live in a world today where evil is often called good and where good is often called evil. And in many cases, it can seem hard to know the difference between the two. But these people are so devoted to the Lord that they will serve as like a living distinction between good and evil. And so a question I want us to consider today is is something to the effect of, how does someone become this kind of person? Like, how do you become this kind of person that is so in awe of God that you're more than happy to push back against the prevailing culture that surrounds us? How do you become this kind of like remnant, this this holy minority? Uh, James gives us some great counsel here in his New Testament letter. If you want to turn there with me real quick, James chapter 4 in the New Testament. We won't have this on the screen. James 4. Um... And he's seemingly speaking to the church here, by the way, but, but he begins in chapter 4, verse 1, by saying, what causes quarrels and fights among you? This is a famous passage. He says, is it not that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder? You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, you adulterous people. And oftentimes we'll just, we'll stop there and we'll, we'll just kind of lay that out there and, and go, and it exposes like the true intent of our heart, right? That so often the things we want are not righteous or good. The things we want are not in line with what God wants. Um, and we're not often pursuing what he wants in our lives. And, and as in that sense, we are, we can be adulterous people, right? We can be so committed to other things or ourselves that we're not really primarily loyal to the Lord. That's some of what James is getting at here. But, but read on verse four. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Or read that as like friendship with the prevailing culture. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you, which sounds a lot like return to me, and I will return to you, which is what he has said through the prophets. 
Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. So the verse in all of that, the verse that really sticks out to me is verse 5, which says, He yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us. Like, God is jealous for you and me, for our hearts, but he's jealous to see his spirit alive in your life, right? He's jealous to see you submitting to his leadership through the Holy Spirit in your life. He wants to see the spirit that he made to dwell in us, like truly dwelling in us. He wants to see us living in obedience and awe, like submission to him. And it seems to me that in Malachi, and and also here in James, and also in our own lives, that the difference between those who fear the Lord and those who dispute God's love or question God or just do their own thing, like the difference between those two groups is humility. It's where James leaves off here. And it's not just like generic, like all shucks kind of humility, like, like not taking credit for things that you've done or something like that. No, no, no. The kind of humility that we're talking about here is a humility that is specific to you removing yourself from the throne of your life and placing God on that throne. That's the kind of humility that we're talking about, the kind of humility where you're removing yourself from the throne of your life and placing God on it as Lord and Master. Now look with me, Malachi 4. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. So, so how is this distinction between good and evil to be seen? How's it going to be seen? Well, it's something that we've talked about in, in like almost every minor prophet that we've studied, but it's, it's this coming day of the Lord which we've talked about, which by all accounts is a great day for those who fear the Lord and a really bad day for those who do not fear the Lord. And and just look at the language here. This day is like a burning oven that will set ablaze all arrogant as opposed to the humble and all evildoers. They will become like stubble. And I think it's significant here that he makes a distinction between the arrogant and evildoers. Like, these are two separate groups. Like, my my guess is that for most of us, we don't know many people in our lives, hopefully, who we would just say are evildoers. Like, like just evil people. Just, Just pure evil. But we know many people who are living arrogantly in relationship to God because they think he's not real, or they think they don't need him, or they think maybe he isn't what he claims to be, he's not good. Like, like that's what Malachi's talking about here. The arrogant are those who say, I have no need of the Lord. And he's putting the arrogant 
right up alongside evildoers. And he's saying these two things are actually the same in the sight of God. That day, Malachi says, we'll set them ablaze and nothing will be left. Now, I think this is metaphorical language. I mean, a lot of the language here with the day of the Lord is darkness and fire for those who are not God-fearers. I don't know if people are literally going to, like, burst into flames. Um, But it really doesn't matter because Malachi says they're going to be over and done with. And so what sets all this in motion? Verse 2 But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. So not surprising, this has long been considered by the church to be a messianic prophecy, a prophecy about Christ. It is Christ who rises with healing in his wings. And and what does the son, S-U-N, do? The son gives light to everything. Right, So the image here is that the sun will rise and it will only be in the light of the sun that everyone will be able to see the distinction between wrong and right. The distinction between righteousness and wickedness. It is in the light of Christ that we are able to see those things. The wicked will see how wrong they were. Those who fear the Lord will now see with unveiled face like we read earlier. And will be like calves leaping out of the stall, filled with joy, like it's freedom. And for people hearing these words, it's quite possible that these words reminded them of Isaiah 60, which is where we've been starting our services uh, throughout Epiphany. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. Arise, shine, your light has come. That's a scripture we often read um, on Christmas Eve. We're all standing in the dark holding candles, right? Arise, shine, for your light has come. Little did the people know that when the prophet said that the glory of the Lord would rise among them, that he was speaking both metaphorically and literally because Christ literally rose among the people and in doing so displayed the glory of God. And he is the living example of righteousness. He is literally the one by by whose life we see what is truly good and what is truly not. He is like the measuring rod. Verse 4, so what do we do in the meantime? God says the same thing I've always wanted you to do. Verse 4, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. In other words, be obedient to me. That's all I've ever asked of you is for you to do what I tell you to do. Those who truly fear the Lord are obedient to him. Those who don't fear the Lord are obedient to lesser gods or obedient to themselves. And just so we're clear, God is abundantly gracious with those who are not humble. God is abundantly gracious with those who don't fear him. God is abundantly gracious with those who aren't obedient to him. That's the whole reason he sent the prophets was to call people out of their arrogance, 
out of their lack of humility. It's the whole reason he sent Jesus, because he is gracious. That is why a primary message for Zechariah, for Malachi, other prophets, it's been said in different ways, but a primary message has been returned to me, and I will return to you. Like the door is still open. Like grace is still available. I haven't left you. I haven't annihilated you. I'm still here waiting for you. God isn't Zeus. Like he's not sitting on a cloud with a lightning bolt just waiting to strike people who don't do what he says. No, he is, as the Old Testament often reminds us, a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and and he keeps, it says, steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, covering all the bases there. But who will by no means clear the guilty? So he is abundant in steadfast love, but he will by no means clear the guilty. In other words, his default is grace and mercy. It is long-suffering patience, and many will come to the brightness of his rising. Many have come to Christ and will come to Christ despite their sin, despite their arrogance, despite their lack of humility, myself included here. Many have and will come to Christ and find forgiveness, but it is also clear that there are those who simply don't want his grace and his mercy and who are unwilling to humble themselves before him. And to fear him as Lord. And despite his long-suffering patience, they will harden their hearts and press on in their denial of him and in their pursuit of their own way. And then this all ends in what seems like a strange way. Verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children And the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So listen, this whole thing ends, (laughs) the whole Old Testament ends with God saying that one of the signs that the day of the Lord is approaching is that he's going to send the prophet Elijah to the people and that his words will turn the people to the Lord. Who is Elijah? Who is Elijah? Well, Elijah was a prophet who lived in the northern kingdom of Israel during the time of the wicked king Ahab and his wife Jezebel, who are well known. Um, he was a man who feared the Lord, living in the month in, amongst the people who most certainly did not. Um, Elijah predated the minor prophets that we've studied. Uh, you can read his story in First and Second Kings. But let me, let me just read you real quick a little piece of his story, just to give you a taste of what he's like. The land of Israel at this point in time has been in a serious drought, um, and the people had been calling upon Baal, which is one of the false gods that they worship. They've been calling upon Baal to end the drought, but nothing had happened. So God tells Elijah to go present himself to the evil King Ahab, and, and, and this is in 1 Kings 18. If you want to turn there, 1 Kings 18, starting in verse 17. When he, Ahab, saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? And what Elijah says is, I haven't made trouble for Israel, 
But you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands. You've followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to come meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, another false god, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab's wife is, um, she's cultivating this thoroughly pagan culture in the land and is entertaining all of these false prophets. So Elijah goes to Ahab and says, tell all those false prophets to meet me on top of Mount Carmel. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. And Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? Listen to this. He says, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. And the people said nothing. So Elijah basically proposes a contest. He says, we're each going to take a bull. We're each going to build an altar. We're going to put the bull on the altar. And we're each going to cry out to our God to rain down fire to set the altar ablaze. And whoever's God rains down fire wins. He's the real God. So if you pick up in verse 26, so they took the bull given them. These are the false priests, the false prophets. They took the bull given them and prepared it. And then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. And listen to this. This, this gives you a, a glimpse into Elijah and what he's like. At noon, remember, he's, he's surrounded by people who disagree with him. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he is deep in thought or busy. Maybe he's traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with swords and spears, as was their custom, until their blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. But there was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. So Elijah takes his bull, and he put it on the altar. And then he orders the altar to be doused in water. And the people just bring more and more and more water to the point where water's just running down in trenches around the altar. And then he calls on the Lord one time, and fire rains down and devours everything. Elijah is a prophet who shows the people who God really is and who he really isn't. The disciples asked Jesus about this prophecy that Elijah must come before. Isn't Elijah supposed to come before the Christ? And Jesus says that Malachi's prophecy of a returning Elijah is fulfilled in John the Baptist. And this is really confusing to people. Is Jesus saying that John the Baptist is a reincarnated Elijah? Has Elijah returned? After all, in 2 Kings, uh, we never see Elijah die. Instead, he's like taken up in a tornado into heaven in a whirlwind. So has he now come back? Is this guy John the Baptist? It's, it's further confused by the fact that John says he's not Elijah. So 
This is not super important, but, but here would be my response to this. The Bible does not have a category for what we would call reincarnation. It, it just doesn't. It has a category for resurrection, but not for like a soul coming back as another person or thing. Um, and, and Luke's gospel actually sheds some light on what's really going on here. So, so Zechariah, who is the father of John the Baptist, not the Zechariah from the Old Testament, but the father of John the Baptist, is visited by an angel. Remember? This is um, Luke chapter 1. He's visited by an angel who tells him what's going to happen, right? Your, your wife's going to have a son. You're going to name him John. And, and what the angel says to Zechariah is this. And he will go before him, him being the Christ, he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So the angel literally quotes from Malachi in this prophecy, linking John to Elijah, but he says he is going in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So who is Elijah? Elijah was bold and, and brash and unafraid. And John was exactly the same way. Elijah showed the people who God really was. And John says, behold, the Lamb of God. He points out who Jesus is. This is not just some prophet. This is the Christ. This is no different, by the way, from when Scripture speaks of Christ as a coming David or as a returning David, or it speaks of Jesus as like the second Adam, doesn't mean that Jesus was a reincarnated King David. He was like David in that he is this shepherd king who leads the people to God. So this is where everything ends. Sort of a cliffhanger. Um, but notice it leaves us pointing to Christ. It leaves us pointing to Christ. And next week... As we begin the Gospel of John, we pick up right where we're leaving off. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Arise, shine, for your light has come. The sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. To the glory of God. Let us pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and for the opportunity to gather together without fear and in freedom to declare these truths. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your gospel. We thank you, Lord, that you have made a way for us who are prone to not be humble and to not live in fear of you and to be arrogant and haughty and to think we know better or to deny that you are good or real or loving. And Father, this morning, I pray that you would forgive us Forgive me. And Lord, awaken us to a full 
and vibrant view of Jesus and the good news of your gospel. Awaken us to the presence of your spirit that would lead us to give over more and more control to you. That we would live in this state of humility that most certainly puts us in the minority. But that in it we recognize we're finding real life, eternal life, in and through you. God, we thank you for uh, the words of the prophets. We thank you for a chance to study those. And I pray, God, that you would continue to deepen our understanding of their words so that we might not just uh, become intellectually uh, more intelligent, but, Father, so that we might truly put their words into practice in our lives, that we might be a people who are continually returning to you, daily, hourly returning to you. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.